you'll be hearing more about her. She's doing a little internship sort of at, at the chapel here at the front desk and back with the uh, media crew. But um, if you don't know already, she has returned fairly recently from the Middle East for, with a missions trip that was a pretty bold move because uh, she went on her own without any of us or her parents with a group that she didn't really know that much. And so we're just going to ask her a couple questions because we don't have much time. Don't want to uh, bite into the word that we're going to be getting. So come on up here. And uh, so which countries did you visit, Hannah? Um, I visited, uh, you can see on the slideshow, I visited mm -hmm. Egypt and um, I went to Cairo up there. So like a little star up there at the top which is a, a city with 26 million people, so it's huge. And then Hergada, which is a conservative Muslim city within Egypt as well. Mm -hmm. And then I went to Jordan, which is, um, and I went to Mafraq, which is um, a city bordering Syria, where we um, worked and helped out with the refugee crisis going on there from the war in Syria, so that was really cool. And then went to Israel, where we went and stayed in Jerusalem. Um, and then I went to um, Tel Aviv for a little while too. So kind of went in a lot of different locations. So. Pretty amazing for such a short time. You were there how long? I was there for two months. Yeah, two months. That's a, that's a pretty good, significant missions trip, is it not? Yeah, and, uh, and so she had a little challenge here and there. What was your favorite part of the trip though? Um, my favorite part of the trip was probably the children. Um, so I, mostly throughout uh, Egypt and Jordan, we worked with kids, which was really special. So this actually little girl right here is, um, I was praying before my outreach. We even knew our location. And the Lord gave me a picture of this little girl. And um, I didn't know who she was, but um, we got our outreach location and then went off and then I forgot about it. And then we went to Jordan and I was helping at a girls program um, where um, Syrian girls, like young, like four through 12 go, who have experienced significant trauma in their lives. And um, I saw her, and that was the girl that I saw in my vision. It was really powerful, like the Lord just showed me her, and, and then I got to share the gospel with her and tell her, like, God sees you, and he knows you, and he loves you so much. And that was such a crazy concept to them, because God is 99, has 99 names in Islam, except not one of them is love. And so, to know that she's seen and loved by God is so significant. So I got to share that with her. So it was mostly the, the children and just those experience, heartfelt experience with the kids were really good. And uh, tell us about the team that you were with. Yes, um, I was with a team of eight students and six staff members. Um, we did a discipleship training school for three months uh, where we lived in a house together and ate meals together and took classes every week. So we really went through the thick of it. <laughs> Uh, they were all strangers, like there's a girl from Turkey, there's a girl from, from Canada, and all over the states. Um, yeah, so we, we got really close and then we all went on our outreach together. So it was really powerful, we made some lifelong friends. And how about the people that you met with your team? Yeah, um, I, I met lots of really, really sweet people. This is actually some of the girls that I met on a house visit in, in Jordan. And um, the, I just had a real connection with those girls. So um, the people, um, generally, uh, we worked with Muslims. And um, 
they were actually super kind and hospitable people and um, really connected with them. And then we worked with Orthodox Jews. So that was, that was really cool too. So it was pretty contrast. But yeah. yeah. And um, what was the one surprising thing about one of the cultures that you experienced? Yeah, actually, the, um, this is a picture of a Turkish coffee. So every home visit we went to, because we went, went and visited the homes of the Syrian refugees and shared the gospel with them. I think I shared. They're very open people um, and have gone through significant trauma, escaping gunfire in Syria and just, just really intense stuff, bombings in their city and just crazy stuff they go through. And we uh, visit their homes and they have like little to nothing, but they give us what they have. And they have like like coffee that they serve everywhere. It's it's really gross, but it's awesome. <laughs> They're so sweet. And, um, and then we just there. So I think the surprising part about this is just their hospitality. Like being from America, I my only experience with with Muslims is I thought, being honest, like terrorism and just I was freaked out. Like the you know full coverings, and I was, you know, but they're actually such loving, hospitable people. Like, they want to invite you in their home and give you everything they have. And then the second surprising part is um, in Jerusalem. This is my Jerusalem team. We, um, the amount, like the population of atheists actually within um, Israel is actually very high. And so that was really interesting to me. Um, So that was a very interesting part of that culture and just the area. Yeah. How about, um, what was one difficult thing you experienced? Yeah, good question. Uh, (laughs) I think the difficult uh, part actually within even just Jerusalem too. Um, Well, first, within the Muslim culture, um, just there's a big like tension there. So like I said, all I know, knew about Muslims is I thought terrorism. (laughs) That freaked me out. So there's a tension. And then all they know about Americans (laughs) is they know what they've seen on TV, which they stream like two shows, and that's like, like you know, Housewives of Beverly Hills, and like, so they don't know, well, they don't know us at all. They think that we're, you know, snobby, and you know, mostly that's just our reputation in a lot of politics, and so um, there was a huge tension within every, you know, home visit, and so there was a lot of like, we kind of had to show them, no, we're we're not like this, actually, we love Jesus, and this is him loving you, and I, so it was cool. And then um, in Jerusalem, we had some tension with um, the Orthodox Jews were, um, yeah, they were, they're very, very, kind of like cactus, like cactus fruit, they're like really prickly on the outside and really soft and sweet on the inside, so, um, there was definitely some, some tension there, but it was all, the Lord just moved through us and it was all worked through fine, but that, was, that definitely made it difficult. Mm-hmm. So. We have a few other questions, but I have a bonus one that just didn't come, occur to me until now. Yeah. What was one spiritual warfare thing you experienced? Yeah, that's actually a really great question. So um, the first thing that comes to mind is through Egypt. Um, it was crazy going there and realizing, like, this is where all of this, like, we were reading through, like, Exodus and, like, stuff like that, and, real, like, reading through, like, the plagues and, like, stuff that were happening through Egypt in the hard heart of Pharaoh. And um, 
I think that the biggest spiritual stronghold over that nation would probably be like that hard heart of Pharaoh, and it's cursed the nation since then. And it's like you feel that over the air, the heaviness, the oppression of the people, you know, just because of that stubbornness. And so it felt like often, like our prayers, because we couldn't, we couldn't go and like openly go to someone on the street and say, Jesus loves you, because we would be forced to leave the country, you know? So we had to um, just do a lot of prayer walks. And within that, you would feel like your prayers, like you would be praying, but it almost felt like Egypt was a jar and there was just a big lid on it. You know, it felt like it was just falling, even though it wasn't. It just was, there was that, that difficulty that, like, oh, gosh, I don't feel like I'm getting to them. But that was a big, yeah, yeah the warfare was strong in Egypt. And what do you think you're going to be missing most about where you went? Yeah, I probably miss the kids, <laughs> as you can see. Oh, they were just precious. And, um, yeah, the people, really, was what it was really all about, is, you know, Jesus just reaching the people. And so... Um, getting to know the kids, like I kind of said, and holding them and looking at them and not knowing what's going on in their home, but, you know, it's probably bad and hard stuff. Um, the Lord just, yeah, the Lord really worked on my heart there, and so I'm, I'm really going to miss the kids a lot, and just the people in general, adults too, so. So three real quick what next questions because sure. we only have a couple minutes here yeah. what, what's God teaching you as you get back into routine here yeah that's actually that's a great question um, hmm. um, as I'm getting back into routine I noticed that while I was gone um, just like there was a moment in my experience through Israel of feeling insignificant, you know, not, not really sure where my calling is, where, I, where I'm supposed to go, and what I'm supposed to even do here, you know, um, there's always those questions, but then, um, the Lord has just spoken to my heart at that moment how significant, like, each part of the body is, and how if somebody's not doing their part, the body's not functioning, you know, and it was, it was really, almost felt like a rebuke at that moment, but, the Lord was really clear to me about stepping in to what he has called me to, you know, whether that's just even sitting and, and just praying and worshiping in the congregation, just all of those, all of those little things, you know, it's like, those are all so significant. And um, even in really, really difficult times and really like coming back to America, I definitely felt, I don't know, like, what do I do now? <laughs> um, but the Lord's just spoke to my heart about how it's not, like it's not in my push. It's, I'm not strong enough to push that far, but it's in my position. And letting the confidence that I'm loved by the one who created me, like straighten my back to stand in this day. And um, wherever I am, whether it's Middle East or here, <laughs> you know, anywhere it's so important to have that confidence and that realization with the Lord so I think that there's a adjusting in culture of course but God is yeah he's moving in my heart in that way I don't know if that answers the question but <laughs> that's my long answer so through all of that 
what did God teach you about himself? Yeah, um, wow, probably his faithfulness. <laughs> That's been a theme in my life, his faithfulness and his grace. Um, yeah, just, um, yeah, I don't, he's just, he's so good and loving and so patient and gentle with his children. And um, I think he really, really uh, was, I felt that patience and that gentleness from God through that experience. Like, I, you know, I traveled all the way across the world, and here I am just shy in a quarter, and he's just so patient with me and loving, and he's just, okay, go, your turn. And then my leader will go and say, oh, you're, yeah, you're preaching today. Okay. <laughs> you know, just scary. <laughs> but, yeah, he's so patient and gentle and faithful. So faithful. So finally, um, how can we best pray for you? Yeah, that's great. Um, I would, if you, if you would just be praying for me, that the Lord would give me clarity and wisdom into um, where I should step next, because I'm in a bit of a transition right now and have been praying about what to do next. So if you would just be praying that the Lord would guide and direct me, mm. um, give me wisdom. So. Thank you, Hannah. Thank you. <laughs> Don't you want to adopt her? Seems <laughs> like I've been gone a long time. It was just a few days, but... And uh, we are uh, picking our place back in Colossians 1, but before we do that, there is a Chevy, blue Chevy car that the headlights are still on. If you've got to get a battery, don't worry about it. Um, somebody's, a lot of people coming and going. I don't know if it's a, it said a Bolt. I think it was a Chevy Bolt. I didn't know if there's cars that leave their lights on anymore. And um, just a, a couple of reminders. This coming weekend, the women have a uh, special little mini retreat of Biden and me. And uh, if you'd like to help out with that, gals, and decorating, just talk to Cheryl right afterwards. And uh, then also we have a men's breakfast coming up this Saturday at the firehouse and Pastor Sam, the senior pastor of Calvary Chapel Chico is coming down along with uh, Bud, his assistant. He's been quite a, a wonderful help in this season of uh, the church here. A number of other things coming up <clears throat> as well. And so take a, a gander at the bulletin if you didn't get one Sunday morning. So Colossians chapter one. And uh, we're going to pick up in verse 3 through 5. And Lord, open our hearts to hear all that you're speaking to us tonight. Give us ears to hear. We want to leave here having met with you, Lord. Break your bread and reveal yourself to us in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Well, 1 Corinthians, the last time we got together, we learned that Paul had actually never, Colossians, did I say Ephesians? Corinthians, okay. Stop the tape, go over. Hi, good evening. Uh, the book of Colossians, and uh, last time we were together, we learned that Paul had never been to that church. He did not start it. Paul was led by the Lord to stay in Ephesus for three years, and he there taught in the college, and, uh, and then during the lunch hour time, he would go and speak to whoever would come and listen, and 
Lots of people came to Christ. The church of Ephesus ended up being huge. But everybody would go home all over Asia Minor. And this guy is believed to be the one, Epaphras, who went there, shared the gospel, started the church, became a pastor, and became a, a, a great strength to Apostle Paul. At this time, Paul is in prison in Rome, and uh, Epaphras comes and shares some great things about some, the church, but then he's also coming to get some advice because there is some heresy coming in, and we're gonna point that out as we get our way through Colossians. But just by reminder, Colossians 1, verse 1 and 2, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ Jesus who are in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ended last week on this, where you cannot have the peace of God until you first receive the grace of God. All religions in the world focus on man doing all that he can to reach God and to hopefully figure out what God likes and what God hates and try with all our strength to do all the things that God likes and try the hardest not to do the things that God hates. And, and of course, it's quite a roller coaster because we're in human flesh. We know this, right? Things I don't want to do, I do. Things I do want to do, I don't do. We find that in our human sinful body, we're at quite a disadvantage. But then they just sort of hope that my good works outdo my bad works and my last works were good so I can have a, a good, you know, couple of months before I die to say, hey, I went out good. Um, and then there's quite a concern, you know. Um, did I do enough to make it to heaven? Did I do enough to make up for all the mean things and wrong things and sinful things I've done? And man is in a constant trying to reach God, reach God and, and God, take my sincerity and my drive and my desire to, to, to want to do what you want and, and let that be my ticket into heaven. That's where all religions are. And that's why people... Uh, I was just uh, with my sister and her family and, and there was a Muslim doctor there and, and he was expressing this, you know, I, I'm doing everything I can to, to make, do many good works as I can. So when I stand before Allah, he'll accept me into heaven. And um, the point is, that's, that's just crushing. It's a burden. That, that, that we're, there's no joy in death. There's no certainty in death. There is a big unknown. And uh, this has never been God's heart. So all the religions are focused on man and his ability to be godly and to reach God. Christianity is the only religion in the world where God comes to man. God came in human flesh, 100% God in spirit, 100% man in flesh, so he could be our substitute. And he did all the work of our salvation. 
We are saved by putting faith in his grace. That's how we're saved. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Not of ourself. It's a gift of God, Ephesians 2 tells us. And so I stand before God and are my works good enough? Jesus said, unless your works are as perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, you can't enter in heaven. Nobody can do that then because God has never sinned, not one time. And I would estimate even the holiest people here have sinned at least one time. <laughs> Since you came into church tonight. <laughs> and, and so we can't undo it. We can't, not, not the smallest of things. You think about Adam and Eve. They just ate one piece of fruit they weren't supposed to eat. That's it. She took a bite, handed it to Adam. He took a bite. And God could no longer walk with them and they could no longer live in the Garden of Eden. Have you ever been in a grocery store and said, man, I wonder what that grape tastes like there. You ever do that? Stilling? Well, some of you guys, they should weigh you before you go in and weigh you again when you come out. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> and uh, so we, we've all sinned no matter how minute. And, and so the wages of sin is death. How can we be perfect before God? It's impossible. But Jesus came and died for all our sin. And it says in 1 Corinthians 5, he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. And now we, the church, Jesus himself, as our husband is working constantly to make us without spot, without blemish, without wrinkle, that he will present us unto the Father. Perfect. So it's all his work. So I, I grew up really on a work basis in my mind, even though I grew up in a Christian church. And I had a really good week. I felt like God owed me a couple of answers to prayers. <laughs> and then there's times I just felt so unworthy to ask God for anything because I'm just the biggest sinner and the biggest hypocrite. And who am I to even read my Bible? Who am I to even pray? And it was always this thing where it was just, I never got approved. And, and I would go down every Sunday morning to the altar and get saved again. And uh, I was just so broken up. By, but by Monday, I was in torment again because I thought I've already sinned so much and I got to wait till next Sunday. I don't know why. I thought I had to wait to go to church to get saved again. And I, I remember one time our youth pastor was saying, we have the opportunity to go share Jesus with people. And I thought, I wouldn't do that to my worst enemy because this is hell being a Christian. I'm always constantly failing and losing my salvation and not right with God. And I'm tormented, you know, all week long until Sunday comes. And, you know, this Sunday when I get saved, this one's going to stick, you know. And I did, not, I did not know grace. I never heard the gospel of grace. That where our sins abound, 
his grace abounds more. The righteous man can fall seven times and he can get up seven times because of God's grace. We have a great high priest who has passed into the heavens, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he has been tempted at all points as we have been tempted. That's pretty sad. No wonder he's a man acquainted with grief and sorrow. But yet he didn't sin. But now he's a great high priest who sits upon a throne of grace <laughs> where we can come to him and get all the mercy and all the grace we need. And so you just have to understand how much God loves you and how much God has called you to himself. And he is not surprised when we're weak. Now, you're gonna reap what you sow, so I, I think we can warn people and say, let us not sin. Sin is addictive, sin is hurtful, sin causes you not to bear fruit, it causes you not to be in harmony with God and harmony with others, not walking in the light, it's, it's, just, it's just a torturous place to be. But he says there, when we do sin, God brings to knowledge that sin. We confess our sin that he's making aware of to us. And he doesn't just forgive us of that sin, but cleanses us from all unrighteousness. I had somebody uh, this week again say to me, it's like, man, I see this sin and I realize it's been in my life 10, 20 years. I never, never even saw it. And it, it shocked me and scared me thinking, how many other sins are underground that I don't know about? And I said, you don't have to worry about him because he didn't just forgive you of that sin, but he's cleansed you from all the other under, underground stuff you don't know about. If he showed us our sinful condition, we, like Judas, would go hang ourselves. So he's gracious. And that's why John writes, little children, I write this, that you don't sin. But if we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And so I'm gonna stand before God and I am not righteous in and of myself. Matter of fact, my heart is desperately deceitfully wicked above all things who could know it. My works, the best works I've ever done compared to God's righteousness are as filthy rags before God. But I am 100% confident I'm going to be coming into heaven. Why? Because all my faith is in the work of Christ. And all that we do in good works and obedience, it's just responding to his love. It doesn't help us get saved. It doesn't save us more. I think when somebody has true faith, we'll see a life wanting to please the one who saved them. And so grace comes in. You're pickled in grace. You're soaked in grace. Now I have peace. But that peace of God, that word shalom, it doesn't mean just peace like we're not at war. It actually is a word that means wholeness, completeness, no cracks. <laughs> we're, we're a whole person. So when we receive the grace, I don't have to walk in fear. I don't have to walk in, in 
when I'm sinning and struggling and, and weak, I'm not thinking God's going to throw me away. God's going to, you know, not let me into his heaven. God's not going to let me back and into his presence again. It's quite the opposite. When the one little sheep goes away, the shepherd leaves the 99 and goes gets that one. I love that story where Corey Timboom is being arrested with her sister and her very old dad at that time, way up in his 80s, and the Germans were treating him roughly, and one hit him right in the head with the gun. And Corey just, ah, she wouldn't kill that German. And her dad looked at her and said, Corey, don't forget, these Nazis are the apple of God's eye. In other words, Jesus came to save not just sinners that aren't really bad sinners. He came to save the worst of the worst. He came to save the deepest and worst of all of mankind. And so he's putting me into this Nazi camp to be a witness. And, and don't, don't hate him, love him, pray for him, bless him. That's grace. And this is what you'll discover. If you now, as God showed you kindness and love and acceptance and mercy, if you'll just be that person now towards everyone else, you just have a heart of grace. There is no ability for them to offend you. There's no ability for them to hurt you. Because every time you see it, that they did something that's very human and very hurtful, you just cover it with grace. And where there's sin abounds, what? Just grace abounds more. Well, Lord, should we forgive him seven times a day? <laughs> Do we only have to show grace to him seven times a day? No, 70 times seven daily if needed. You see, God is putting difficult people into our lives on purpose. God is giving us kids that we are no match for. <laughs> God has given us neighbors and coworkers and enemies even, like Saul was towards David. No matter how good David was towards Saul, Saul continued to be his enemy. Why? Because God is trying to deepen you in your grace until Jesus on the cross, grace just flowed, right? Grace and grace, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. There's just this heart that no matter what you can do, well, if you pound some nails into his foot, I bet he wouldn't be gracious. They did. Well, what if they nailed his hands to a cross? Then he would have something mean to say. No, he didn't. We'll suffocate him to death on that cross. You couldn't get anything but grace and mercy and kindness and love come out of Jesus, could you? No matter what. He was a man of grace, and thus he was able to bring peace to all of us. So as God, he is reaching out to us saying, you got the gospel of good news, which is God is wanting you. What do I do? Just ask him to be your Lord. Believe upon him right now, and you're saved. The proof's in the pudding. Jesus on the cross. Two guys, not one murderer and one rapist, 
but both thieves, equal. They weren't just your regular thieves. They were so incorrigible, they were crucifying him. So been this way. But we know both of them are very hardened to Jesus while in prison because when Jesus is walking the parade route, the Via Della Rosa, and there he has the patabulum upon his shoulder. As he goes, people are spitting on him and ripping his beard out, and, and, uh, and the two thieves are joining in, mocking Jesus. You're on your own death, and you've got energy to torture somebody else? Pretty crazy. And then we know hanging on the cross, if you look at the Gospels, they were mocking Jesus. But yet... They hadn't gone too far because the one thief realizes Jesus, Lord, look at all the gospels together. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what came out of Jesus? Grace, mercy, forgiveness. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. The guy could do no good works. He was pinned to a cross. His hands were pinned to a cross. He never had to endure one of my sermons. <laughs> he never tithed. He never witnessed. He never read his Bible. He, what good works did he do? None. But he's going to share the same heaven as you and my, I are. Why? Because we're not saved by our works. We're not unsaved by an entire life of sin. But he believed that Jesus was Lord. And when you come into your kingdom, he believed Jesus was gonna raise from the dead. And so he was saved right there. And so that's when grace comes in. And so we have to have faith in the grace. We gotta be strong in the grace. Paul calls Acts 20, he says, we have the gospel of grace. And the grace is, is that however big your human weaknesses, sins, addictions, whatever it is, God's love is greater. God's mercy is greater. God's ability to save to the uttermost, the guttermost, as uh, Moody used to say. And so then we have peace and the same with one another. And God's going to test you, Right? Jesus was dead upon the cross. Oh, now that he's dead, they'll leave him alone. Nope, here comes the spear, right into the side, testing him, are you really dead? And so when we're dead to our own self, the Lord's gonna test our deadness. <laughs> and he's gonna let us keep getting poked, even though we've died to our own self, our own wants, our own desires, our own living for our own self-gratification and just say for me to live as Christ. It's gonna be tested. And so we gotta understand that grace comes to us and peace comes to us from God our Father through his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, in verse three here tonight, we give thanks to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Now, Paul doesn't say, don't forget I'm here in prison and it stinks and I'm cold 
and there's rats cruising around here. And these Romans really don't like Jews too much, especially Christians. No, what's Paul doing? We just see him giving thanks. I just want you guys to know, I'm not focused on me and my struggles and my hardships. I'm down here in prison rejoicing. We, we remember the story in Acts, right? Where there in Philippi where Paul was beaten with rods, him and Silas, and they were put down into the dungeon, chained to the wall. And about midnight, they just, their heart was so full of thanks. They just started singing, praising the Lord. Do you remember that? And then all the prison opened up for everybody. <laughs> and Paul had to quickly save the jailer from killing himself. We see Paul is a guy who is giving thanks for the church. Is that, is that the way you do? I hope you give thanks for the church. Matter of fact, in Ephesians 5, 25, it says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also, what? Loved the church and gave himself for her. We often preach, God died for you and your sins, and that is not untrue, although it's not clearly that said. It's the understanding is when you come to Christ, you're a part of his body and you are coming to link together. One's a hand, one's a foot, one's an ear, one's an eye. If the whole body was an eye, where would the hearing be, right? We're all individual members and, and Christ loves the body of believers that join together to worship him, to encourage one another, to strengthen one another, to be matured through the preaching of his word. God loves the church. So therefore, if Christ died for the church, if Christ loves the church, then what should we be doing? <laughs> Loving the church, right? And giving thanks. Thank you, Lord, for the church. Thank you, Lord, for that hand and that ear and that eye. Paul lived in a state of thanksgiving. In 1 Thessalonians 5.18, he said, in everything, give thanks. Pretty much narrows it down, doesn't it? <laughs> for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So what's God's will for my life? I, I don't know, but whatever's happening, there should just be this amazing heart of thankfulness going on. In Philippians 4.4, 4, rejoice in the Lord, how often? Always. And again, I say, rejoice. I, I'm gonna preach this message twice, he says. Because if you didn't get it, then you're really missing out. Get it, and then get it again. Everything give thanks. Rejoice in the Lord always. Doesn't mean in everything, but about everything, God's in it. And just a heart of just thankfulness. Lord, thank you for this day. I remember that story again of Corey Timboom, where she was in prison. And a lady who was uh, the elite uh, violinist in Germany said, look at these Nazis have done to my hands. And she couldn't move them anymore. I'll never play the violin. 
And now Corey was even hurt and upset and mad, wrestling because the Nazis were treating her sister so bad. And her, there in the Bible study that day, her sister was teaching on rejoice in the Lord always and everything of things. And this lady walked up to her and said, what about these fleas and these lice? It's worse in our barracks than anywhere on the entire campus here. And her sister said, Lord, thank you for the lice. Thank you for the fleas. I know you even have a reason in these tiny little things. It just put Corey over the edge. That was just, it just, she got really upset with her sister after that. And of course, all these people mocked her. Well, years and years later, one of the guards on that place said, I can't believe you guys had a Bible in there. And you guys had Bible studies a few times a day in there. And he said, you know, the only way that happened is you guys had such a problem with lice and fleas. We wouldn't go in and check your guys' place for contraband. So we, we didn't want to get the lice and the fleas. And then Corey remembered that. She goes, thank you, Lord. Forgive me for not just thanking you in faith. Thanking you that there's no coincidences in your kingdom. Right down to every hair upon our head and lice upon that hair. God, you have a, a, a reason. So this is Paul. We, we think of them in prison. We think him there going through such an incredible hardship. But it didn't stop his heart of thankfulness. Right? Man, we know scientifically now, this is a fact. If you are not a rejoicing, optimistic person, and people of faith, our faith is in Christ, so we should be the most optimistic people around. Right? There's no coincidence in God's kingdom. He knows every star in its place by name. Then he knows there's not one little tiny step that God doesn't know about. So of all people, we know that that reduce, it actually produces uh, chemicals in our body that make us healthier. Proverbs says, laughter is good medicine. Well, we know that's to be a case now. And the opposite of that, people that are grumpy and upset and stressed and angry, it is physically hurting them. True? So the Bible is true spiritually, but we see the benefits in the, in the physical realm sometimes. And so here again, Paul is just saying, I give thanks. Now, we're going to find out in this book of Colossians, Epaphras came dumping the weight of all the problems of the Colossian church on him. And so maybe the people thought, well, when Paul hears about how messed up we are, um, he probably is not going to want to write a letter at all and uh, probably just sort of want to act like we don't exist. But they're reading this letter, and they know that this guy who has so much to be concerned for his own life, he's got to be so uncomfortable, so much pain, and yet he knows us. He's never seen us, he's never been to Colossae, but he rejoices 
in our existence. He rejoices in us. We don't see this just happening here in this book of Colossae. As a matter of fact, Paul does this repeatedly. In Philippians 1, 3, and 4, notice here, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with what? With joy. Paul had a joyful prayer life. And I give thanks thinking of you as I pray for you always. I just have joy when I think about you guys. And of course, I'm sure it's just the confidence of prayer. I know that as I pray for them, God's going to hear it and answer it according to his will. In Philippians 4, 6, and 7, one of those great memory verses, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Everything, prayer, intense prayer, laboring in prayer, but yet thanksgiving, the whole spirit of the prayer is a time of thanksgiving. And, and I know this, if you live this way, the peace of God will be upon you. And it'll actually be a protection against your mind. That thankful heart in prayer will protect your heart as well. And so I just want you guys to have that peace that's beyond human con reasonableness. It's like you got to be a little mentally ill to be thankful being in that dark prison. Paul must be a little unstable. He's down there laughing and rejoicing and talking and I guess he's praying, but you know, he's just, thank you, Lord. And, 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 and they're looking at him going, what state is this guy in? And this is what we, we see. We see it again when him and Silas were beaten and, and shackled in, in the dungeon there of Philippi. They can't stop at rejoicing and thanking God. In Ephesians 1, 15 and 16, Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you and making mention of you in my prayers. So I give thanks and I pray and I pray and I give thanks because I hear what God is doing. In 1 Thessalonians 1, 2, we give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. So this is a common thing. Paul praying, rejoicing, thanking, and we see that his prayer is always, continuously. Paul practiced what he preached in 1 Thessalonians 5.17. Here's, here's your memory verse for this week. Pray without ceasing. Okay? That's just to, to help you out there. <laughs> I can only other shorter one is Jesus wept, right? So here's the second one. Pray without ceasing. Paul did. He constantly was, was in prayer, earnestly. In Colossians 4.12, we're going to see, he, he praises the people who have this intense prayer with joy, with thanksgiving. And we're going to see in Colossians 4.12, Epaphras is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greet you. Listen to this, always laboring fervently for you in prayers that you may stand perfect and complete in the will of God. I mean, think if we had five people praying that prayer for Calvary Chapel Red Bluff every day. Lord, with thanksgiving, Lord, earnestly, God, 
We thank you for Calvary Chapel Red Bluff, Lord. And I think we shine in some areas, okay? We, we, we're not here with a little 20-minute devotional message and shoot you out on your way. I think we're laborers in the word. I think that pleases the Lord. That's sort of our claim to fame. I don't say if every church doesn't do it the way we do it, they're doing it wrong, but that's what I think, but I wouldn't say that. <laughs> but I, I just rejoice that, man, people come for an hour Bible study. Uh, yeah, sorry about that. And uh, if you didn't know, but hey, Lord, we thank you for the verse-by-verse -verse teaching. We thank you. I've been in that church 10 years, and I know the whole Bible. Thank you, Lord, for what you're doing. And Lord, we pray earnestly, Lord, that you would perfect and complete them in all your will, lacking nothing. Every work the church is to do, every mission field they're to be on, ministering to the youth and the young people and the elderly, Lord, don't let them miss out on any part of your plan for that fellowship. In Ephesians 6.18, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end in all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. This is what Paul talks about, our weapons of our warfare in, in, in fighting against Satan. And he says praying, prayer, supplication, perseverance with supplication, for the saints. One more on this, 1 Thessalonians 3.10. He says, night and day praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. So Paul was praying without ceasing. He was in joy and rejoicing as he thought about them. And the Lord brought, no doubt, people to mind and situations that he could really seek the Lord on. This is Jesus' heart in prayer. In Luke 18, he said, I'm going to tell you a parable that you would always pray and never lose heart. Boy, put that out on the, 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 the church sign out there. This Sunday, how to always pray and never lose heart. Jesus spoke on that. And it was about a widow woman who went to a judge who didn't respect man, didn't fear God, but she persisted. And finally, he said, you're wearing me out. I'll give you what you want if you go away. I have not changed. I still don't like people, and I still don't fear God, and I just want you to leave me alone. And he did everything she asked. And, and then Jesus says, how much more will your heavenly Father, who is just and who does love people, will give to him who cries out to him day and night? Interesting. That's how he described prayer. And then he ends it by saying, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? Question mark. What's the definition of finding faith on the earth? People not losing heart in prayer and crying out day and night unto him. Prayer, earnestly, supplication, laboring, fervently. Paul says this in Romans 15, 30. I beg you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit that you strive. This is the word agonizomai. We get our word agony from it. So literally it would be we that you would agonize together with me in prayers to God for me. I'm begging you 
that just let the love of God through his Holy Spirit just come upon you. God, give me your spirit. Empower me with your spirit. That love come upon you, and now you just can agonize in prayer that God would open up doors for me to preach the gospel as I ought to preach. Well, in verse four, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all the saints. The word faith, pistis, is the root of that word, um, pitho. It, it means, it actually is translated to obey. So the concept is a faith that obeys. And so when you have a true saving faith, there is a life of obedience responding to that faith. And this is why in James 2, it says there in verse 14, what does it profit, my brethren, if somebody says he has faith, but he does not have works? Can faith save him? Thus, in verse 17, he goes on to say, also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So somebody will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Then in verse 19, he compares it to demons. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even demons believe and tremble. So let's understand what saving faith really is. It's not just a historical faith because an atheist history student could historically believe Jesus lived, right? I don't think too many people doubt the, the, the reliability of all the historians that Jesus actually did live. And so that would be like a person looking at the warning on the pack of cigarettes, Surgeon General says this will cause cancer. It's like, okay, does that mean the guy's gonna quit smoking? <laughs> No. So historical faith, do demons have historical faith? Sure, they used to live in heaven with God before they fell. The next step in faith is called a census. First one's phyta historia and then a census of our senses. So people will say, I believe in Jesus and every time I hear amazing grace, I cry and cry and cry when I think about my grandma dying. I'm just so touched by that song. I, there, there must be faith in my heart towards God. But James says, but when the demons hear the name of Jesus, they shudder. They have an emotional reaction. Boy, we see that in the gospels, don't we? These demons crying out, Jesus, don't judge us before the time. Just please send us into some pigs or something. But Jesus had to shut these demons up. But they, they had an overwhelming emotional response to Jesus, but that didn't say them. What, what is the difference then? Well, let's think about it. As a believer, we believe Jesus is Lord. And yes, we believe that factually, that doesn't save us. We believe it in our hearts. We, we truly sense that there is a God and I need to be right with him, the fear of God. Begin of knowledge, begin of wisdom. But then we say, God, we want your will. And when we don't have your will, it is hurtful. What are, are demons saying that? <laughs> are demons going, Jesus, you're a Lord. They fully believe it. 
Don't judge us for the day of judgment. They believe in judgment to come. They, they have emotional response. But is a demon saying, Jesus, how can I do your will? What, what can I do to please you? No. And that's where fiducia, true saving faith, there's a submission, an obedience of faith to do his will. And so this is what he points out in verse 20 there of Acts 2. Do you want to know, a foolish man, that faith without works is dead? What was Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered Isaac, his son, on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect? So the scripture was fulfilled, saying, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. So the Lord ordered Abraham to go and to sacrifice his son. Now that's in Genesis 22. But where God declared him righteous was way back in Genesis 15. Abraham said, I guess I'm never going to have any kids. And God said, go look at the stars. Is that how many sons you're going to have? And Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. Now, God knows he has true saving faith, but we don't. So years goes by, Isaac now is born, and he's grown, and God testing him to reveal his faith. Take Isaac up and sacrifice him. Now, Hebrews tells us that Abraham remembered God saying, through Isaac, your descendants shall be. And so in Hebrews 11, it says, he knew that God would raise him from the dead. And this is why in Genesis 22, he says, servants, you stay here. I and the lad are gonna go up and we both shall return. Even though he knew God was putting on his heart to kill him as a sacrifice. Because he, he knew that through Isaac, Isaac didn't have any kids yet. He wasn't even married yet. And so he knew that Isaac had to be alive. And no matter what happened to him, that he would live. And so if God had him kill him in faith, he knew he had raised him from the dead. So God was never asking Abraham to murder Isaac. Because Abraham knew you can't murder a guy. Because God has already said until he has kids, um, nothing's going to happen to him. That's a tremendous amount of faith. Now, Abraham was a man, a Jewish man, the father of our faith. On the other side of the coin, you got this woman who's a prostitute. In James 2, 25, likewise was the, not Rahab, a harlot, also justified by works, when she received the messenger and sent them out another way. For as the body without the spirit is dead, faith without works is dead. So all the people, it says, their heart melted within them when they heard that the Jews were coming to Jericho. And they all knew there's no way we can fight against God and win. So they all had faith. The historical faith of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They had a census that they were going to lose because this is God's command that they take this land over. But yet, they were still going to go through the motions of fighting against God. But not Rahab. She knew that God is going to win. I'm not betraying my nation because they're all going to be dead. So therefore, she hid the men and let them out. She was the only one that had true saving faith because we see it in her actions of works.
So true saving faith is real. It's happening in the life. So, you know, if Dennis here tells me he bought a brand new Corvette and uh, a couple weeks goes by and he's cruising up on his 10 speed and I'm saying, hey, I thought you bought a Corvette. Oh, I got a Corvette. Don't you worry about it. And three months goes by and 10 months goes by. I start to doubt whether he has a Corvette or not, right? In the same way, if somebody has faith, we're going to see it. Maybe not in a day or a week or even months, but there's going to be a point where we're gonna see faith. And here he's saying, we've heard of your faith and we've heard about it in actions of obedience. This faith that comes through Jesus and your love for all the saints. That's where they're seeing the faith, that you're loving all the people, all the saints. Now we can all love some of the saints, right? There's some lovable saints here. And we all sort of gravitate to those lovable saints. And that's just our weakness. You know, we gravitate towards people that got their lives together and they're sort of good looking and they don't have a lot of burdens carrying because they're doing okay health-wise and financial-wise. And, and, uh, and, and so, you know, we sort of like to be around people that don't, aren't burdened. And so we gravitate towards them. That's just, it's going to happen every time. But in reality, there's people that just are, are just so difficult and they're just so hard and they're always upsetting the status quo. And yet those are the people that we need to love the most, isn't it? And this is what we see, a genuine love for all the saints. It really comes down to this. I could almost say this. You say you have faith without the works of loving the unlovable, <laughs> I'll say you don't have faith at all. If you really have faith in Jesus, then we're gonna see it in the work of loving all the saints. Look with First John with me. In chapter two, verse nine through 11, think about this. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in light and there's no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know he is where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. In chapter three, verse 10. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest or become obvious. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God and nor is he who does not love his brother. In 1 John 3, 14 and 15, we know that we have passed from death into life because we love the brethren. We have the works, the obedience of loving. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We don't actually have to kill somebody, right? We just hate them in our hearts. That is the same as murder. In 1 John 4, verse 20 to 21, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? I, excuse me, and this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must also love his brother also. And so here we see, man, we've heard of your faith in Christ. How? By hearing of your love 
for all of the saints. And we know that there is always the unlovable. There's difficult people who have struggles and money problems and health problems and, and problems of, of all kinds of things that, that cause their life to be miserable and cause others' lives to be miserable. But isn't that the kind of church you want to go to? Where everybody's just full of grace? Where everybody's just loving people, caring for people, blessing people? I mean, just imagine a church that's just been seeking God in prayer day and night for all the saints. And they're walking in the Spirit. They're being filled up with the Holy Spirit and His love. And we've been praying and seeking God. And we come in here now, not a bunch of empty, stumbling, hurting vessels. Oh, Lord, help me get through the church today so I can, you know, limp out of here. But we come in here, you know, running and leaping and praising God. We're already filled and overflowing. And now we worship God. Do you, do you think this roof is solid enough for such worship? I think, I think, I think it'd look different than it does now. And then I think when we're hearing the word, we're already so rich in the presence of God as the pastor. Of course, everybody's been praying for the pastor, right? Um, he's now preaching and, and he's, all these prayers are behind him and he's full of the Holy Spirit and power. And, and not only does your heart get changed, but God begins to draw non-believers, hurting people. And we see people get saved every week. And then afterwards, we're so full of the Holy Spirit we're just praying for one another and encouraging one another and speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. This is what Paul is rejoicing in. And God, if the Colossian church is not that way, get him there. Lord, I'm praying earnestly night and day, crying out with my brother Epaphras that you would just do a mighty work in these Colossians. And verse five is where we end tonight because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of truth of the gospel. You are living in this hope. Now our word hope means like, oh, I hope that happens. You know, I hope my team wins the Super Bowl this year. But this kind of hope is different. It's a certainty. We don't have an English word, but if we did, it would be an absolute confidence that this is gonna happen. So today is Wednesday night, and, and maybe you're excited about tomorrow morning, and you say, man, I hope Thursday morning gets here soon. Well, it's gonna come, right? It's a definite, it's gonna come, but there's just a joyful expectation knowing it's gonna come, and, and you're excited about when it's gonna come. This hope, it's a certainty of heaven, because I'm saved by grace, by having faith in that grace. It's not of myself, it's a gift of God. So I'm rejoicing that the Lord has finished the work. It is finished and it's a confidence. I think Peter chapter one, verse three through five says it better than any other passage. Blessed, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, does not fade away. This is the same word as laid up, reserved in heaven for you, 
who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. You guys have this confidence of heaven's reserve for you. You have this absolute certainty that heaven is laid up, kept by the power of God, incorruptible, not because you're good, not because you're holy, not because you're righteous. It's because you have put your faith in the God of grace and by his love and his grace, um, we are saved. And so therefore we have a hope. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 and 14, but I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, Christians who have died, lest you sorrow as others to have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. So they were being taught a heresy that if you didn't stay alive till the rapture, you didn't go to heaven. And Paul's saying, ridiculous. We're not, we're not like the world. We, we have a unique thought process in life. Of all religions, we are the only ones that have a certainty of eternal life. We're the only ones that have a certainty that we're gonna be with all those who have died in Christ. Man, I'll tell you, my sister, as you know, I've been visiting her and she's dying of cancer. Her husband just died like January 1st. We had his funeral a couple of days. His heart has been given out since his 30s. And they knew they were gonna die about the same time, so they always argued who would die first. And, uh, and now she's got, I don't know how long to live. But man, they are both just so on fire Christians that there just was never a sting of sorrow. Now we've been weeping since her husband Chip died and we miss him horribly. And, uh, and with my sister, there's many tears, but there's such a certainty and such a, I, I can't explain it. There, there's just, it's not like people who don't have the gospel of grace and have such a faith in Christ. In Ephesians 2:12, the contrast that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's the way we used to be before we received Christ. Do you remember that? I can remember back in my 20s, I wasn't, I was so far away from when I gave my life to the Lord, I couldn't remember what it was like not being a Christian. And so I did the thing and said, God, help me. I want to have such a, a passion to evangelize and, and a reality of, of there is no other way but Christ. And, you know, what, what, help me. And it was like the next day I started praying, it was like I was unsaved. I didn't even put the two and two together, but I just had, I just didn't, I couldn't hear God's voice. I read the Bible. It didn't mean anything to me. I, I would pray and it seems like my prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. And I just remembered going, man, this is just empty. It's like I'm, I'm a walking dead person. I have no sense of purpose. And, and there's no, I don't sense God's leading. I didn't realize that I'm just constantly sensing God's spirit and leading and, and talking to people. It's about Christ. And God's giving me words for them and encouragement. And after a few days of that, I'm just like, God, what happened here? And he reminded me of the prayer. 
And then things were turned back on. I'm like, wow, I forgot how lonely and angry and frustrating and, and, and there's just not that constant sense of God's spirit in us every second speaking to us and us speaking to him, even if it's in the meditation of our heart. Without hope in this world because they're without God. But we have a certainty in 1 John 3, verse 1 through 3. Beloved, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. We shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him right now purifies himself just as he is pure. So how do we keep this hope? So if you look at verse four and five, he says faith. He then says love and he says hope. We know that passage in 1 Corinthians 13, right? Faith, hope, and love, these three. These three characteristics that are unique through Christ. We're having faith in a God who loves us, who has called us before the foundations of the world. We have a faith, a genuine faith in him. And then we have this overwhelming hope that we are confident I'm gonna remain in him because everyone Jesus calls, he keeps. He hangs on to us, right? He will by no ways, no means cast any out. And then there's the love. The love, first of all, that, and this is love, not that we love God, but that he first loved us. And that we just have this sense right now that the Lord is saying, I love you. I have a plan and a purpose for you all day tomorrow. In him, live and move and have your being. And we can wake up with a confident certainty that God is at work to will and to do of his good pleasure in our life. And this unreal sense of his love for you and his love for everybody else. These three beautiful flowers. I was watching an old black and white movie the other day and it was uh, during World War, after World War I, but this guy was trying to get his horse to go through the town. And uh, this guy was just beating the horse, just gonna kill it. Kids were watching on and, and this uh, guy who, ended up, it's a true story, ended up being in the, in the Nazi prison for, even though he was a, a Catholic priest, he stood up for the Jews and ended up uh, basically being put to death for it ultimately. But um, he was up there and, and he saw the, the horror of everybody watching this guy beat his horse and, and he just walked up and he said, hey, Quit beating the horse, man. This guy has been hearing bombs and guns and he's been in the midst of a, a war. Of course he's freaking out. And the guy's like, get out of my way, priest. It's my horse, I'll do what I want. And he goes, if, if, if I pray for this horse and it obeys you, will you not hit it again? The guy goes, go ahead, it's not gonna happen. And the priest just said, God, you made Balaam's donkey not only obedient, but talk. I'm not asking you to make this horse talk, just obedient. 
And that horse just calmed down perfectly. And it was such, I don't know, I, when I just saw this faith, I don't know, I just, how lovely is faith? How beautiful faith in Christ is. How beautiful it is to be with my sister and her hope of heaven. It's just, it's, it's such a definite. And I, and I know that all Christians have such faith. And then the love that just, I, I have a sense every morning and all day long that God's just like, Brian, I love you so much. I have such an amazing work that I'm gonna do through your life while you're on this earth. I'm gonna do miracles. I'm gonna open the windows of heaven. I'm gonna give you divine appointments. I'm gonna speak to you through the word. I'm gonna answer your prayer. I'm gonna make you not only as fruitful as you've seen, but I'm gonna prune you and make you more fruitful than you've ever been. That's the way I feel all day long. I just sense God's good pleasure and how I want everybody that I bump into to know of God's good pleasure and that all it takes is a moment like that thief on the cross. Doesn't matter what the words are because that thief on the cross really had no good prayer. He's just, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Just Jesus, be the Lord of my life. I want to leave this 7-Eleven. I want to leave this gas station. I want to bump into that neighbor and say, God loves you so much that he gave his only begotten son that if you put your faith and just receive his grace, not, you're not worthy of it. You're, you'll never do enough good works to make up for it. It's just as a free gift. Love. So faith, hope, and love. These three, right? But the greatest of these beautiful, beautiful flowers is love. And Lord, we thank you for your word tonight. And we thank you that we have been reminded that our hope should lead us to rejoicing in everything, rejoicing always, giving thanks in everything, that we should be a people with smiles on our face and joy in our heart because we know there's no coincidence in your kingdom down to every toenail, down to every hair, down to every flea, <laughs> that you have a purpose. There's nothing that touches our life earthly or demonic that you don't allow and you don't have a purpose to turn it around for good in our life. Lord, help us tonight to get our eyes on you and give a life of just crying out to you in prayer night and day. And Lord, put our love that you have for your church, for our church, and encourage one another why it's called day and let us walk in faith, hope, and let your love penetrate us, overwhelm us, and let us have that same love to share with the world. Make us evangelists, make us witnesses. Give us that gospel of grace that our mouth cannot be shut to. And we just lay it before you this night in Jesus' name. Amen and amen and amen.